0: This organization has been meeting formally, and I'm excluding battlefield tour meetings. We've never had a talk on the last campaign and the end of the Army of Northern Virginia. We're going to remedy that tonight, and I can't really think of anyone more qualified to tell the story than the speaker we have this evening. He's a veteran of the National Park Service with experience in the Living History program at Appomattox. He's working now with our friend Bob Crick at Fredericksburg. Many of us here tonight will remember his brilliant recreation of the Union veteran at Fredericksburg in last year's battlefield tour. This is not his first appearance before us, but it's his first appearance before us in Chicago. I'm delighted to get him up here and I know we're going to have a a most unusual evening. So would you all please welcome to talk to us tonight on the Appomattox campaign, our good friend, Chris Gawkins.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I guess I should start off tonight by apologizing for not being here in March. Uh, but in case you haven't heard, at that time I was at the Grand Canyon with 91 inches of snow, looking at piles of rocks that they were telling me was Indian ruins. Uh, it wasn't quite my cup of tea, I would have rather been here, believe me. Uh, I know many of you, of course, from last May, uh, years ago May, when you were down to Fredericksburg, and then some of uh, your members here are veterans of our own little Athematics campaign of about two years ago and when glenn asked me to speak on the last days of the civil war uh, i tried to decide exactly how i would present it to you and i felt that since the area which we'll be speaking about south side virginia is i hate to say the word backward but in other words the area has changed very little since the civil war and it is quite fascinating to go along the routes of Lee's and Grant's army, see old homes, old road cuts, and other areas like this pretty much as they were in 1865. Uh, an inevitable word progress has not made it to this part of Virginia, uh, apartment buildings and whatever have not been built upon it, although I'm afraid this will come pretty soon. And so what I've done is I've put together a slide program tonight showing you a famous Places, battlefields, homes, uh, sites connected with the last days of the Civil War, first as they appear today, and also as they appeared some 50 years ago. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to find a series of 110 photographs taken in the early 1930s of Leeds retreat. Uh, these were done by national park historians who were just trying to decide where to put a national park to commemorate these last days of the war and so you'll be seeing some places that are no longer in existence uh, maybe much more closer to what they were at the time of the Civil War and then lastly I've added into the slide program uh, some maps, uh, some paintings which you probably haven't seen before Uh, in other words I I hope to give you a little feeling of that area and maybe you'll come down and visit it sometime. Uh, First of all Before we get started with the program, I have passed out along the tables here a small map, uh, one detailing the campaign itself. I hope everybody was able to get one. I had no idea there was going to be this many people show up, so I only photocopied about 75. So some of you will have to uh, share them. And also passed out at the tables are a series of maps showing the Five Forks battlefield, Farmville. Appomattox Courthouse in Sailor's Creek, and uh, I won't speak too much in detail on these battles, but if anybody is interested, they can go ahead and pick one of these up and take it home with them. The, the Appomattox Campaign, uh, and I'm referring to it as the official records do, is more commonly known to most of us as Lee's Retreat. Of course, some of you would probably prefer to have it as Grant's advance or Grant's chase, depending on your uh, your sympathies. But it was a relatively short campaign; it was only nine days. Uh, but of course, it would have to be termed the most successful for the Army of the Potomac, and it culminated in the surrender of Lee's army. But interesting enough, it's one of the least known about and least written about campaigns of the Civil War. Now, this is for many reasons. First of all, the uh, important succession of events which followed uh, the culmination of this campaign, the surrender, you had other Confederate armies surrendering uh, Johnstons, Kirby Smith, Dick Taylor. Uh, these all made the headlines of the time. Of course, the most famous event, two days after the formal surrender ceremony at Appomattox, President Lincoln was shot and died the next day. And then you had the government upheaval following that. Consequently, the newspapers of the time did very little reporting on what had happened those last days, and then the men themselves were so jubilant over the ending of the war that they sat down and didn't bother to write about these events. Even the official records are somewhat sketchy. Um, Of course, the men in both armies had never been in this part of Virginia for the most part and were unfamiliar with the areas they were in and uh, wrote little bit about it. Very little about it. But just as a starting point uh, I'd like to give you a quick rundown of the armies we're dealing with at this time. Of course we have Lee's Army of Northern Virginia and at Petersburg in April of 1865 Lee's Army numbers about 54,000 men. It breaks down to about 5,000 cavalry, 5,000 artillery, and 44,000 infantry. And this, does, this figure does not include the local defense troops in Richmond and Petersburg, and then the naval troops, which are at Rurie's Bluff, just below them, uh, Richmond. And at the time of the surrender at Appomattox, Lee's army will number about 30,000. He will lose approximately half of his men along the retreat route. Uh, on the other hand, the federal army numbers uh, on March 20 of 1865 127,000 men. But at Appomattox, there will only be 61,000 men of the Army of the Potomac present. The reason for this is, of course, Richmond and Petersburg fell. Uh, Men of the 24th and the 25th Corps under General Ord's Army of the James had to occupy both of these large towns. And then uh, the 9th Army Corps, which used to be Burnside's Army Corps, was given railroad duty. They were guarding railroads uh, along the retreat route. Theoretically, you cannot count these groups of men as being effective in the Appomattox campaign. So in other words, at Appomattox, Lee was outnumbered two to one, as had been the case throughout most of the war. Uh, The campaign, of course, for the Confederate Army uh, was the most disastrous, being that they ended up surrendering. But on the other hand, it was this campaign, the events that took place along this, the severe suffering of the Confederate soldiers, Well, it was this that put <coughs> the cap on the legend of the famous Army of Northern Virginia. And it was the most important campaign in, in one other respect, because with Lee's surrender at Appomattox, it initiated the surrender of the other Confederate armies, thus ending the Civil War. Okay, uh, I believe somebody is going to run the program for me. I guess I'll just ask you to turn the slide uh, program on. I'll move out of the room. <coughs> this gentleman needs no introduction. Oh. I just have a photograph of him to to show uh, the two main characters involved in this campaign. Uh, this is Robert E. Lee, born in 1807, and at the time of Appomattox, he is 58 years old. The, his antagonist is General Ulysses S. Grant, joined with members uh, of his staff. Uh, in particular, the gentleman over here is Ely Parker, full-blooded Seneca Indian. Many of these men seen here with Grant will be with him Uh, when Lee surrenders at Appomattox Courthouse. Uh, Grant is 15 years younger than Lee at this time. the time of the surrender, Grant is just 43 years old. The uh, starting of the Appomattox campaign can be traced to an event which took place at Petersburg on March 25, 1865. This was what was known as Lee's last offensive movement, the Battle of Fort Stedman. Uh, early on the morning of the 25th, Confederates under John B. Gordon led an attack on this fort, this federal fort. They captured it for a while, but were pushed back, and this would be the last movement of Lee's army in this aspect. In the assault, Gordon lost over 5,000 men in casualties. Okay, basically, what that photograph was was a picture of Fort Stedman as it appears today. Fort Stedman is now in the Petersburg National Military Park. And this is another gentleman who plays an important role in the Appomattox Campaign. He, of course, needs no introduction, Philip Henry Sheridan. He had served out west at Perryville, Murfreesboro, Chickamauga, and Chattanooga. And in 1864, he is brought to Virginia by grant, and he commands the Federal Cavalry. He returns in late March of 65 from his successful battle with early in the Shenandoah Valley and uh, he will lead the uh, attack at five forks on April
0: 1st
1: after uh, the battle at five forks on April 1st which the previous slide uh, showed in the battlefield uh, Lee's last artery into Petersburg which was the South Side Railroad was cut Uh, Confederate troops led by George Pickett and here we have a map which is very basic and very similar to the one which i handed out uh, a couple pointing areas we have richmond here 20 miles south we have petersburg uh, about 20 miles or so to the west of petersburg is five forts. here on april 1st uh, federal cavalry uh, captured the south side railroad lee is left with nothing to do but to retreat from Petersburg and Richmond. Now, what Lee's plans were, was to take the men from both of these garrisons here and move them westward to join at Amelia Courthouse. Here, Lee hoped to receive some supplies and rations for his men, and from there he planned to follow this road here through Jetersburgville, down through Burkeville, and eventually down into Danville, which is just on the border of North Carolina. Lee hoped to move his army there, and to join up with the army under General Joseph Johnston, the Army of the Tennessee, and combine the two forces together. And so this was his plan for the Appomattox Campaign. And uh, basically what happened was once Lee obtained the position at Amelia, he found that his rations were not waiting there for him. So what he did was to spend one day in that area looking for food and supplies from the local people of course they being so close to petersburg and richmond they had given everything that they had had but consequently by lee spending that day at amelia he lost his day's lead over grant's army so what happened was federal cavalry following a southern route here moved around to the front of lee's path cutting it off at Jetersville. So what Lee had to do was to move across country here to Farmville and then hopefully follow this road down here to Danville. Well, as his men moved across, they met with disaster at Sailor's Creek, which we'll talk about further. He made it to Farmville. Federal cavalry cut him off to the south so he could not go to Danville. Lee then moved north across the Appomattox River, which we can see flowing here, and westward Towards Appomattox Courthouse. Now, waiting at about two miles from the courthouse at Appomattox Station down here, Lee had some more supplies which he was attempting to reach. Federal cavalry and infantry following a shorter road get around in front of Lee. He has infantry following him in the rear. He is trapped at Appomattox and the surrender takes place. On the night of April 2nd, Lee's men pulled out of both Richmond and, and Petersburg. Uh, on that day, there had been a heavy assault by Grant's men all along the Confederate lines. The most uh, disastrous blow to the Confederate Army that day was in the form of the death of General A.P. Hill. He moved forward to reconnoiter a position and was killed by two Pennsylvania skirmishers who were moving along the Boyden Plank Road. But that evening, Lee and his army moved out and headed towards Amelia Courthouse. Now here at this building, known as Clover Hill, uh, Lee and his officers stopped uh, along the retreat route. Uh, The gentleman who owned it was Judge Cox, uh, formerly of Richmond. He was living out here. And it was in this house that Lee and Longstreet and other Confederate staff officers were entertained uh, most of the staff officers being entertained with mint julep, but Lee declined and asked for just ice water. Uh, and at this point, the Confederate morale was still quite high. The men were happy to get out of the trenches. They felt if they could make it into North Carolina, they that uh, they could continue fighting on. So men were quite jubilant. And there is a little story about what happened in this home. Uh, the judge's daughter, Miss Kate. Uh, took General Lee on an excursion. I won't go into it, but if you ever have a chance ask Marshal Krolick, he'll tell you the story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lee's army made it to Amelia Courthouse without mishap. Grant's army was about a day's journey behind them. And this photograph here is of Amelia Courthouse in 1936, and these photographs were taken as I explained to you earlier. this evening during the slide program when you see either the sepia toned photographs or black and white photographs these are the old slides as they appeared at that time now the courthouse itself is uh, a replacement building it's not the original one that was there uh, and of course the confederate monument on the front lawn but at amelia lee had ordered 35,000 rations to come uh, when his main men reached the trains, they opened up the doors of the uh, box cart but found only ammunition there was no food uh historians today still squabble as to what happened to it at that time the big belief was that jeff davis had taken the train with food on it ordered the food off and it was on this train that he escaped down to danville when he was fleeing richmond uh, but uh, since has been proven that this is not true but here at amelia lee asked the local people for food and supplies of course, they could not produce any and he lost his day's lead on Grant's army this is the same view today uh, things don't change too much in Southside Virginia uh, don't take me wrong I'm not saying that that area is backward but uh, gone with the wind is just premiering down here. <laughs> right, this is Jetersville in 1936 uh, a federal officer in cavalry described Petersville as being a small village on a railroad of scarcely a dozen dwellings, a store or two, a blacksmith shop, a post office, and a small railroad de- depot at which there were a few cars. It hasn't changed much. The only thing that's changed is the model year of the car. Now, these are the trenches which Sheridan's men threw up on the night of April 4th. Uh, to put a roadblock across Lee's path to Danville. Uh, they were later reinforced by members of the Fifth, Sixth, and the Second Army Corps of the Army of the Potomac. and some of them are still there. You have to look pretty hard and have them for them, uh, but they were quite formidable at that time. But well, Lee decided not to battle the, the Federals. Uh, Mahone, uh, who was the commander commanding general under Lee, uh, argued against this. He said, The men still are in good spirits even though they didn't have much to eat at amelia courthouse he felt that uh, lee should attack the federals at this point Uh, again lee did not the reasons are not clear but what he did was to move north along this road here Uh, this is the way much of lee's retreat is now just uh, a depression in the ground most of it uh, being closed off to modern traffic as lee moved northward he passed homes like this the uh, Jeter's home, after which Jeter'sville was named. Uh, you might take note tonight as you see the different homes along the road of the type of uh, dwellings that the people lived in in Southside Virginia. Uh, there were no big plantations, no terras, as in Gone with the Wind. Most of the people were just common farmers, mainly tobacco farmers in this area, and lived in homes like this. This would be a, a fairly substantial homing compared to most that you'll see this evening. Of course the home is still there today uh, very few people who pass it really know anything of its history uh, federal officers were in and around the house a skirmish took place around it in fact in tonight's questionnaire there was mention of the battle of amelia springs well actually that battle took place right around this home the Lee's army moved past past the uh, cheater's home down this road to the first obstruction they had come to Flat Creek. You can see the bridge in the background. Now, in April of 1865, all the rivers and creeks were high out of their branches. It had been a lot of rain that spring, and when Lee's men made it to this creek, the bridge had broken down, and his engineers had to build a pontoon bridge. Uh, Consequently, they were way late, and this delay would would uh, cause trouble to Lee. And the Black Creek was high and swollen when I took this photograph I'll get an idea of how big it is. Uh, now, this is the resort of Amelia Springs, which the battle was also named after. Amelia Springs was a salt Springs, it was a very famous resort. Uh, many Richmonders, during the Civil War, went out here and refugees. Uh, Lee had his headquarters in these buildings, Uh, these buildings no longer exist, in fact all that's there now is that, (laughs) found a few bricks and and that was all about all it was, but this was quite the place at one time, it it contained over 1,300 acres, between 500 and 1,000 people visited there at one time, and uh, again it was Lee's headquarters during the fighting around this area. (laughs) <laughs> the roads had changed, or the vehicles had changed a little bit, but the roads hadn't. In fact, I imagine Lee's artillery and his wagons had a little bit of uh, movement through one like this. But this is the road they retreated on, Lee moving towards Farmville, uh, goes along roads like this. His army passes small dwellings like this. This is the Vaughn home, which was used as a Federal Field Hospital for those who were wounded at Amelia Springs, Jetersville. And later, Sailors Creek. Lee's men passed through the little bill of Deatonsville. This is all that's left here. And it was here that the Federals uh, began attacking Lee's rear guard, which was held by General John B. Gordon. Now here's a map. I oh, hope most of you can see it. Basically, showing the prelude to the Battle of Sailors Creek. The Confederate Army coming down the road from Deatonsville towards Farmville, which is this road right here. Come to a crossroad. Well, now, the Confederate Army makeup at this time runs as thus Longstreet is in the van. Lee is with Longstreet. Following Longstreet, we have Richard Anderson and Richard Ewell, uh, who have come from Richmond. And behind them are the wagon trains of the Confederate Army, and bringing up the rear guard is the Confederate Second Army Corps under John B. Gordon. Well, as the Army makes it, to this crossroad. Longstreet moves on to, to Rice's station, which is on the road to Farmville. Anderson crosses Sailors Creek, Ewell behind him, but they send the wagon trains on a northward road to cross Sailors Creek two miles north of the crossing where they were going. When Gordon came to the crossroads, instead of coming in behind Ewell, he took off and moved behind the wagon train, thus leaving Ewell's rear exposed and this would be the start of the Battle of Sailor's Creek now this is the famous crossroads uh, in the early part of this century the Confederates are moving in this way the trees here uh, are the area of the Hillsman Farm which I'll explain about in just a few moments the land drops off into a bottom land here where Sailor's Creek is located the Confederate wagon trains move on this road followed by Gordon This is the same view today only looking towards deepville in this way and this is the road that (laughs) gordon as the the soldiers pulled into the battlefield area many of them stopped by this small graveyard this was the hillsman graveyard a local farm overlooking sailors creek Uh, morris shaft who was a union officer mentions walking over to this graveyard and looking in and seeing the grave of moses overton a descendant of the man who owned the hillsman house Moses Overton had been a veteran of War of 1812, he was a naval officer there. As as the men moved into position, we have Ewell and Anderson crossing Sailor's Creek. Here is the Hildman House, located just a few hundred yards from the creek itself, and of course Gordon moving on. The Federal infantry were coming down this road and behind Gordon. This is the Hildman House. It was built in the 1770, uh, at the time of the Civil War, it was owned by James Moses Hilsman. Uh He was with the Army of Northern Virginia, but not at this time. He had been captured at Spotsylvania and was in federal prison. This is the same home today. The home is owned and administered by the State Parks of Virginia. Uh, they own Sailors Creek Battlefield, in fact the only Civil War battlefield which they administer. And normally this home is open here to uh, the public. Uh, it was used as a hospital during the civil war and of course they have the usual bloodstains and things like that but the state park is not in the field of history they are in the field of recreation and for the last four years this has never been open to the public Uh, they just don't have the funds i told you i was going to take you back to the civil war period Uh, this gives a a graphic view of the union army as they lined up in front of the hillsman house they were members of wright's sixth corps Uh, they Formed up in battle line uh, only to await for an artillery bar- barrage which would take place against the entrenched Confederates. Now, this is a, a painting by Sidney King, and unfortunately it's not too light, but what it shows is uh, the Federal artillery here overlooking the creek in the bottomland here, and on the hillside we have the Confederate forces under Ewell entrenched. Uh, they were bombarded for between 20 minutes and a half hour Be loosened up before the federals would attack them this is the same view today federal artillery and ewell's line would be across this open area here Sailor's creek right in this bottom now a mile behind ewell a mile back in this direction here anderson was also entrenching Federal Cavalry had ridden in front of him and had blocked him off. So uh, you had the Confederate Army surrounded on both sides by infantry and cavalry. Again, more artillery at Sailor's Creek. The final assault took place on April 6th, about 6 o'clock in the evening. Wright's men lined up in front of the hillsman house, moved down the hill, crossed the creek, and attacked yule who was entrenched at the top of the ridge this is a photograph of the area as it appeared uh, in 36 Uh, this is taken from the hillsman house and back up in here is the ridge which the confederates were formed on you can see the road fairly going down here to the creek again the creek right here and the open ground upon which yule had his men formed. at this time, uh, General Ewell, who of course had lost a leg at Grove uh, early in the war, uh, was said not to be in all of his senses at this moment. Uh, general Richard Anderson had gone with Ewell uh, trying to decide upon what they would do in the battle. Uh, Ewell could not make up his mind. In fact, as the cannonading was go- going on, several staff officers of Ewell's command said that the general was walking around making such statements as mine but tomatoes are very good i wish i had some the federals crossed over the the creek in this bottom here began taking casualties in the creek of course the creek was swollen as were all the streams as i mentioned they moved up to the top of the hill where yule's men were entrenched Uh, as they went up this field here uh, the confederates Fired a volley upon them, which temporarily stunned the Federal advancing line. Many of the Federals retreated back to the creek. They reformed, but only after the Confederates had made a spirited countercharge. You see, Ewell's forces was made up of local defense troops. Uh, there were some regulars, and also Marines and, and sailors who had come off the Confederate ships down at Murray's Bluff. Many of these men had never been in a land battle before. And uh, when they saw the Federals retreating to the creek, they jumped over their small works and let it countercharge. Gilbert Gall's painting graphically shows the fighting to the end at Sailor's Creek. A uh, Confederate officer who was there describes the final attack of the Federal soldiers when they did pile in upon the Confederate line. His name is Robert Stiles. Many of you probably are familiar with his book. He says, quicker than I can tell it, the battle degenerated into a butchery and a confused melee of brutal personal conflict. Bayonets, rifle butts, crushed and pierced. Others lost their weapons and used teeth to bite noses and ears in this terrible scuffle. But in a few minutes, the Confederates were all overwhelmed. This is a view from the Confederate position. On Ewell's right, uh, the Confederates were commanded by uh, General Brevard. John Reverend uh, Kershaw, and on his left, the men were commanded by Lee's son, George Washington Custis Lee. And this is the view of the park today, the Hillsman House, you can see in the background here, the white building. Sailor's Creek is in the bottom, and of course, this is the hill which the Federals attacked. Sailor's Creek was the first major disaster which befell Lee's army on these last days. In the battle here, the Federal Army captured 7,700 Confederate soldiers. Seven Confederate generals were captured, one of them being General Ewell, who was captured at this home, the Marshall home, which no longer exists. Others were General Lee, Custis Lee, of course, Seth Barton, General Corse, Hunton. Dubois and Kershaw all became prisoners of the Army of Northern Virginia. Upon that, upon the ending of the battle at Sailor's Creek, General Sheridan, who was a participant in this, wrote a short note to President Lincoln saying that if the thing is pressed, I think that Lee will surrender. Uh, Lincoln sent a short but curt response back: "Then let this thing be pressed." Behind Ewell, of course, was the Federal cavalry, which attacked Anderson. They moved past this small home, past Gill's Mill, and as it appears today, is about gone, until they came to the Confederates who were entrenched along this crossroads. This has been termed the Battle of the Crossroads. Uh, Anderson's men were commanded by Bushrod Johnston and George Pickett. And they were spread out across this field. Uh, Many of these men did escape that evening from the (coughs) clutches of the Confederate or of the Federal cavalry. And as they retreated back towards the remnants of the uh, Confederate Army that were further ahead, mainly Longstreet's Corps, General Lee looked out and saw his men retreating. He made the famous remark My God, has this army dissolved? at the same time that the battle was going on at the creek gordon of course was following the wagon train past homes like this the noble home christian home and finally to this home this is the locket home which is still in existence today of course as you can see uh, we are currently trying to get it on the national historical register Uh, the home is fairly well pockmarked fighting took place all around it uh, we have uh, memoirs of soldiers who mentioned shooting from behind this chimney right here. Uh, the home has a small monument in front of it, and it, it's a somewhat unique monument in that every line on it has something wrong. First of all, Salem's Creek is not spelled as thus, it's S A Y L E R S. Here Lee fought his last battle. Well, Lee were, was nowhere. In in this area, it was Gordon in command of the Confederates, and it was not Lee's last battle by no means, as we'll see. He did get the date right. Ewell was not there. Ewell was two miles up the creek, and it's quite quite a uh, set of wishful thinking to think that he almost won a great victory, but was overwhelmed by Sheridan. Of course, Ewell was overwhelmed by Wright, but uh. It still marks the spot that's all we care about <laughs> this is sailor's creek where gordon was captured uh, this is the bridge uh, where confederate wagon trains got bogged down in this bottom here and, and this is what slowed up gordon's men the confederacy would lose two great men who many of you probably have read about or at least heard about in these two battles of sailor's creek one was Stapleton Crutchfield. Now he was Jackson's chief of artillery and of course was wounded at the same time Jackson was or in the near area of Jackson's wounding. And it was he who rode back to uh, the hospital tent in Jackson's ambulance with the general once he was wounded. He was killed at Sailor's Creek and as far as we know was still buried there. Another gentleman who you might have heard of was William Emery Cutshaw, Cutshaw's battalion of Confederate artillery. Here, in the area of this home, Cutshaw's leg was uh, pretty much torn off by a cannonball, and in this house, his leg was amputated He was later captured by uh, federal soldiers. The Battle of Sailors Creek won many laurels for the Army of the Potomac and the uh, ensuing cavalry which followed them under Sheridan. The Medal of of Honor were given like candy for sailors' creek, forty-nine medals of honor were given to to the soldiers for captures of battle flags. Nine were given for gallantry. <coughs> one was given for the capture of Custis Lee. Here, see can back up to that one. The other way. Back up there.
0: <laughs> 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 <and do a> <laughs> <laughs> push select. Push it. Push it and
1: hold it. No, push select the on the projector position. and lift it. There you go. Okay, just okay. Now just cool. move forward.
0: One
1: more. This is this is the area where Lee made the famous <laughs> statement, which I just spoke of. He saw his men who had escaped from the disaster at Sailor's Creek coming down this hill and crossing a branch of Big Sailor's Creek, streaming across this bridge. And he stood at the proximate spot where this photograph is taken and turned to Mahone and made a statement about his army dissolving. Well, that evening, Lee gathered what few men he had left, mainly Longstreet's corps. Many of Gordon's men did escape, as did some of Anderson. And they moved on to Rice's station. Which again hasn't changed much in these past years. This is where Lee had his headquarters for the night. But another event took place at the same time of the Battle of Sailor's Creek. It was just a small cavalry battle known and referred to as the Battle of High Bridge, but again was an extremely costly uh, battle for both sides. Here around this home on April 6th. Uh, members of Confederate cavalry led by Generals Rosser, Fitzhugh, Lee, Deering, and Mumford uh, attacked a small group of about 900 Federal infantry and cavalry who had been sent to burn the High Bridge. Now, the High Bridge was a strategic railroad bridge across the Appomattox River. These men were sent by General Ord, who was commanding the Army of the James. And when they met with the Confederate cavalry around this house, a quick <laughs> battle took place in which the union general leading this bridge this party of bridgeburg general reed was killed colonel washburn of the fourth massachusetts was also killed for the confederates in this fight general deering was killed he would was actually he was mortally wounded he would die uh, a few days after the surrender at appomattox and at this spot would be the last confederate general to die in the Army of Northern Virginia. Also, Major James Thompson of Stuart's Chief of Artillery met his death (coughs) at this place. This is what they were going after, the High Bridge. Uh, The High Bridge uh, was 2,500 feet long. It went across the valley of the Appomattox River which at this point was 75 feet wide and therefore unportable Uh, and it went across a valley which was a mile in width. It was held up by these brick piers you see uh, which were 140 feet in height. Um, The Confederates attempted to burn the bridge to stop the Federals from following them and this is the reason for this replacement of the trusses here. The Federals had rebuilt it shortly after the Civil War but to give you an idea of how big it is you can see the fellow standing right here now today the piers still exist and are flanked on the side by a modern railroad bridge uh, of the same height and on the same magnitude this is another bridge which was strategic it was the same railroad only crossing the Appomattox River shown in the uh, bottom of the photograph here Going into Farmville. Uh, Lee's men attempted to burn this and were successful. Now, what Lee planned to do at Farmville when he found his road roadblock down to North Carolina was this. He planned to cross his army north across the, the Appomattox River, burn all the bridges behind him. He knew the river was unfordable and that possibly it would take Grant a day or so to get his army across. By this time, Lee would be along on his way and hopefully would be reaching Appomattox where he had trains of supplies and food waiting for him there. In the fighting around Farmville, uh, even though uh, Lee's army was uh, slowly meeting its, its disaster in the fighting in that area, the great commander still had time to visit. He visited this home, which was the Jackson White home. Uh, Here he had breakfast on the morning of April 7th, uh, and took time to walk across the street to this home. This was the home of of Mrs. John Thornton. Her husband was a regimental commander in a Confederate cavalry who had been killed in the Maryland campaign, and Lee walked across the street to see her and to uh, give his condolences.